Let's keep seeking after the Lord who is here. You know, years ago, uh, I had to fly out to California to help to take care of my sister who was suffering with advanced stages of cancer. And uh, my brother, my brother-in-law had been taking care of her, but they needed a little reprieve, and so it ended up being my turn, and I flew out there. My sister is 10 years older than me, and um, she's the youngest of four of my sisters. Um, and so we ended up, we fought like cats and dogs, but then we got closer once she moved out and got married. And uh, then as the years went on, our relationship developed, but we were in different worlds. So here she was. She was home now after her last surgery, after her last round of major chemotherapy, and she had hoped that it had given her success because we do know all too well how terrible late-stage cancer can be on a person. And so I've been in the kitchen cooking and cleaning up, and yes, I've always cooked, and I can clean up too. So I was doing that, and, uh, and I was doing that when she got the call from the doctor. And she got the call from the doctor, and I could tell on the phone it was serious. The cancer had spread throughout her whole body, and she only had weeks to live. I knew the news was bad. I could tell. And she got done, and she hung the phone up. And I could see her just kind of go. She raised her head. She looked straight at me. And she went, Kelly, I know you have a real relationship with God. I knew what you were like before you came to know him, and I've watched how your life changed after you've come to know him. And I want you now to tell me how to come to know him too. Oh, yeah. Wow. I'm standing in the kitchen. It shocked me that she was so candid and so straightforward. It really kind of knocked me off guard, because there I was. And I felt like everything held in the balance, and I had to step up to the plate. So thankfully, I did find my footing. Thankfully, I was able to rebound. I was able to give her the answer she sought and she needed. And at the end of it, she confessed her sins to Jesus. She asked him to become her Lord and her Savior. And she committed herself to follow him for as many days that she had left. She only had about three weeks, and she was gone. But for three weeks, she lived for the Lord. For three weeks, she listened to the scripture uh, audibly, because she couldn't read anymore. And she went into eternity and died with Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's give God a hand for that. Amen. Amen. God can reach people at the very end of their life because they've paid attention, God has spoken, they've seen a witness, but they just weren't ready to respond. They weren't ready to act on it. But then sometimes the realities of life cause us to react. They cause us to be ready to respond. When I think back over that time, it really, I kind of wish in some ways I had been a little more prepared for that encounter, that witnessing encounter. I wish I'd been as confident. I wish I'd been as straightforward and ready to speak the word of God to a modern-day pagan because that's what our family was. We were just a hodgepodge of everything. 
we believed in ourselves. We believed in anything that gave us pleasure. So we were kind of Epicureans in some ways, uh, and Bohemians, and uh, just whatever else you might say, but we didn't know there was a living God. And I wish I would have been more confident, more straightforward on understanding how to find him. Because Paul, in our passage today, he was confident. Paul, in our passage today, was ready to speak to a group of people that were much different than who he preached to before. See, most of our sermons in the book of Acts that we've talked about so far, they were given to Jews, and they were given to God-fearing Gentiles who frequented synagogues, which were like Old Testament churches. And so these folks knew about the law, they knew about the Old Testament writings, yet today Paul is going to speak and witness to a different audience than this familiar group of people. These people are not familiar with the law. These people don't believe it. And these people instead have a myriad of other gods and other philosophies that they worship and follow. They're a whole different group of people. So, so how's Paul going to approach them? Is he going to approach them the same with the good news of Jesus? Or is he going to take a different approach? What's he going to include in his gospel to these people? These people who are searching for a God they do not know. They don't know. And there are a lot of people out there searching for something. I know people know they're searching for something. When I found Jesus, finally I realized all my years, and I'm not going to go into it, the things I was running after was always a search for God. It was. It was a search for him and for life. And so I had to push it to the limit because I was really searching for God. And those things could never fulfill. You know, you've been there too, and we have a lot of friends and family that are there as well. How do we approach them? So I want you to read with me as we set the scene of how Paul approached them. It's found in Acts chapter 17, and we're going to start in verse 16, and we're going to read through 21. And I want you to catch how he faced this audience. While Paul was waiting, he said, for them, and he was waiting for Timothy and Silas to come back to him, and he was waiting for them in Athens. So he'd moved on from Thessalonica and Berea and come down to Athens. It says that he was greatly distressed to see that that city was full of idols. So Athens was a key city, right? We know at one point it was a key political city. But now that it was gone, but it was a key intellectual city. It was a university town. It, they were, it was an educated city. It was much like an intellectual center like Berkeley, California is on the West Coast and Washington, D.C. is on the East Coast. It's like that, or like we might say Austin is in the Midwest, or Wichita. We can call ourselves an intellectual city, although some may call us a cow town, right? But we're an intellectual center here in Kansas. There are places like that, and that's what Athens was like. And it goes on. And he was distressed to see that the city was full of idols, false gods. So he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some of them asked, 
what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Arapagus. That's kind of like the leaders, the, the elders, the decision makers. Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching that you are presenting, what it is? You are bringing us some strange ideas to our ears. And we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. You've been around folks like that. That's what we do in our culture. We, I mean, good grief. Online and on TV and on the radio, there's just talk, 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 talk. Talk, 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 talk. Something new every single day. Can I hear an amen to that? It's exhausting. But that's how we are. Now, Epicurean philosophers that he encountered, these are people that are pursuing pleasure as their chief purpose in life. Wow, we have a lot of Epicureans around these days, don't we? And we don't even know it. We seek after pleasure. The next experience. The next fun thing that we're going to go do. The next thing we're going to buy and have. Because that's what really is our highest value in life. And we think that life is about that, and that's what they thought it was about. They wanted the most pleasure out of life you could have. They wanted the most peaceful, free of pain. They didn't want disturbing passions. They didn't want superstition. They, they, they didn't want any fears at all, and so they did everything to avoid that. Now, they didn't deny the existence of God, but they believed that there were no gods, and that gods didn't really have anything to do with their day-to-day -day life. And we can tend to be like that in a culture like ours because we're highly religious. So we tend to think God is there and, and God really matters and we'll go to church. And we'll do, but we get, when it comes down to the practical decisions of life, I make them. I lead my life my way. I, I don't take the yoke of Jesus on and really think that all my values need to adjust to his word. We, we don't feel that. We feel like, well, it's kind of at my leisure or at my pace. It's funny how it all seeps in, right? But these philosophies were there too. And then he had Stoics. And Stoics were, they were pantheists. You know, they believed that everything was God and that the physical universe was God and that it was going to continue to develop and expand. And so they put their trust in those things. They felt that proud dignity is what mattered. To commit suicide is better to live life with less dignity. And so they were okay with taking your life late if you were going to suffer and if you weren't going to be able to live life to the fullest. The Stoics believed that everything was God and God was in everything. And therefore all things, good or evil, whether they were from God or not, shouldn't be resisted. They believed there was no particular direction or destiny for mankind. It's what you choose. So we see that there are Stoics and there's Stoic philosophy out there too that we embrace. And these are the people that he's speaking to. These are the people he's trying to reason with. So let me ask you, how did he approach them? How would you approach a person like that, a group of people like that? How would you approach him? Well, I want you to read with me again 
in Acts chapter 17, and let's start reading in verse 22 through 23. It says that Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Arapaic, and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So they had an altar or a, or a place of worship, and that place of worship was to the unknown God. So, Paul says, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, because you call it unknown. He wasn't trying to offend them. He didn't offend them by saying that. He just said, I realize you don't know this unknown God you are worshiping. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. I'm going to proclaim this to you. So Paul began by gaining rapport with them. And if you want to share with somebody, you're going to have to do that. And what he did is he acknowledged their devotion to worship. They were very devoted to worship. We are devoted to worship as well in our communities. We, we show up to church. We're in the Bible Belt. The Greeks were basically polytheists, and they worshipped many gods. In fact, one uh, historian claimed that in Athens, they had at least 30,000 idols and gods and temples. Think about that. 30,000. One historian said it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. And it was probably true. Every, we think we have a lot of churches in, in Wichita. We feel like they're on every corner. Oh no, this was much worse. When it came to idols and gods, they were everywhere. And each god had their temple, and each god at least had their own statue, if it didn't have their own temple. And they even had statues or temples to concepts like virtue or freedom and many others. So it was just, they covered their basis. And Paul began by acknowledging their devotion to worship. Look it, you want to worship. You're out there trying to get it done. You know, when I first came to Christ, I would witness to my friends and say, man, you're looking for something. That's why you, you, you drink like a, like a camel that has, hasn't even had a drink yet when they would go out and party and stuff. That's why you're running so hard after things because you're looking for something greater than yourself. You're looking for life. You're looking for fun. You're looking for truth. And you start there as you begin to witness. And that's where Paul started. That's what you have to do with people, right? But then Paul presented a relevant problem to them. They were uncertain in their worship to the point that they erected this statue to an unknown God. We're, we're not really sure. Just in case we've missed a God, we're going to put this thing in the unknown God because that's going to cover it. We're going to cover all of our bases. Don't you love that? We're going to cover all of our bases. It's like the guy in the foxhole that's got the Jewish star, it's got the Christian cross, got the Muslim little you know, thing, and it's got everything. Got the, got, the, got the rabbit's foot, because he goes, man, you know, I, I believe. Because <laughs> I want it covered if I'm going to be in this foxhole. That's what they were like. That's what they were like. But Paul, so he presents this problem you have this unknown God that you're uncertain about. You're worried about offending him. You don't know him. So I'm going to make a promise to you. And this is the promise he makes. I promise to solve your problem, to clear up your ignorance, your uncertainty, your insecurity 
about this unknown God, and how I'm going to do it is I'm going to proclaim to you who God is. What God is like. How you have to respond to know him. See, it's very logical, isn't it? And you see him doing it in our passage. As a witness for Jesus, we are sharers of the message of how to find God. And we need to let people know that. How do you find God? How do you find forgiveness for sin? How do you experience God's kingdom? Um, We have to be sensitive to help people understand these things. And we have to attempt to meet them where they're at and to try to answer the questions they have about God and about faith. Paul did this in the introduction of his message. Now we want to take a look at this message. I know we're apprehensive in having these kind of open conversations, aren't we, most of the time? But we've got to have them in our families. We've got to have them in our neighborhoods. We've got to have them in our workplaces. Because if people don't hear, they're not going to know. There was a time when I had no idea. And I had to have others begin to tell me things so I could go research them out, test them, and find out if it was real or not. We all need other people to share with us. And I hope you'll take the opportunity to do that with people. But build a rapport with them. So what was in his message? Let's read it. Here's Paul's message. And it's not all of his message, but listen to his message. Starting in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. We heard that today, didn't we, in worship? And he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. Don't ever let anybody call this the house of God. You heard that from your pastor. This is not the house of God. This is the house of God. Amen? Amen. We are the house of God. God lives in our midst. God lives in our hearts. This is not the house of God. And he had to tell them that, and we have to tell each other that, because in our modern day, we get confused. And we mess that up. This is a house where the church meets. This is where God's God's body, God's house, meets in this facility. It's a tool. It's not his house. It's his tool. It's a tool. Let's go on. I'm sorry, I had to jump on that. My family knows that I get anal about that. I don't want you ever calling a building the church. That's just a misnomer, and it communicates falsehood. It's not true. All right, let's go on. Sorry. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. A lot of their gods and their idols were served, and they felt they were really you know, scared that they didn't serve them right. So he's telling them these things, and they're kind of going, whew. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Hold on, a God who's a giver? A God who gives breath and life and everything else? Hmm. From one man, he made all the nations. And you know what? It's so funny. In modern day, we've come to that conclusion in science that we all come from the same ancestors. Oh, okay. Now we're going to validate Scripture as being true to science. Well, it always was. It never fought with science. You don't have to check your 
science brain at the door when you come to Jesus. Amen. We are all descended from one man. He made all the nations that they should inhabit the earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this. Why did he do this? So that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. You ever heard that in a history class? Hmm. I have a history minor. I never heard it. Let's go on. For in him, Paul says, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. No. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day he will judge the world with, with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Well, that got him to react after he said that. We're going to look at their response and their reaction later, but let's get into his message. What did Paul begin to say to them? How did he start? Well, he says first, God is the creator of the universe. That's a good place to start. In verse 24, he starts with that. God is the creator, and we are his creation, his creatures. He is other than us, and he is other than all he created. He's not part. God is not the tree. He's not the stones. He's not the air. He's not the moon. Those are things he created. He's other than those things. He cannot be contained in a temple or a house nor can he be contained in an image that a creature creates. That's always going to be a misrepresentation of him. Anything that we create to try to describe him, because he's God. And he's greater than those things, and he's the creator of these things. Paul recognized that, and we have to recognize that philosophers have to change their ideas about God. Many people believe things about God that the Bible never teaches. Many of the people who object to our faith in Christ don't know our God or Christ. And so we would look at them and say, I reject that God in Christ too, because I don't believe it either. And we have to let them know who he is. And so Paul begins to say, this is who he is. We know we have to change your mind. We've got to change your understanding. We have to change your, your opinions of who God is. And so we were going to let you know what the scripture says about him, but also what the revelation of Jesus shows us about God, and then about the revelation of God in the lives of people. It shows us something about God. So we start with Genesis 1. There is a God, Genesis 1 tells us. He's almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and all within However, the Old Testament book contains other scriptures that describe God. And here's a couple of them that I want you to take a look at and put in your notes. The first is Isaiah 45, 5 through 7. This is what God says. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Okay? The God we worship says, I am the Lord, there is no other. 
So any idea of a pantheistic idea, false. No. You're just deluded. You're, you're being deceived. You're being distracted. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. And then in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, or are your way, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, and that's a huge stretch, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I'm just going to tell you that. I'm here. You're going to have to deal with the fact that this God has, has made these very straightforward, narrow, strong, definitive statements about himself. Is this the God you know? God who is creator of the universe? God who is creator of all things? He is creator. And it's good sometimes to sit down and ask yourself, do I realize that I am worshiping the creator of all? But he's not only the creator of all, he's the sustainer of life. And that's what Paul told us in verse 25. God is not worshiped as though he needs it. Rather, he is the giver of life and everything we need, everything we need to live, to thrive, to succeed in life. God is the giver. James 1, 16 through 17 echoes this, and it told us, do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So good gifts come from him. He's the giver and sustainer of life. He is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. He gives us the privilege to serve with him. He gives us the privilege to walk with him to be a part of his work to build the church and to reach people. It is a privilege. But here's the deal. He doesn't need us. He's not like in need. We need him. We need him. And I want you to know that. That's why if you're hurting or if you're down, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn of me, for I'm humble and gentle of heart, and you'll find rest for your soul, for my burden is easy and my load is light. He cares more about you than he does about your work. God doesn't go and say, well, just run yourself into the ground. He wants you to trust him, and he wants you to work hard, but he's not using you. We don't serve a God who uses us. Although we say that sometimes, God, please use me. But see, we serve a God who loves us. We serve a God who died for us. And he wants us to trust him and to walk with him. So Paul is, is telling him he's the sustainer of life. He's not the robber of your life. You're doing that yourself. You're letting the world do that. You're letting the evil one do that. God doesn't do that. But he, then he continues, number four, God's the ruler of all nations. Every single one. Woo! 
God's the ruler of China right now. Say amen. God's the ruler of Iran right now. Say amen. God's the ruler of the United States right now. Say amen. I don't know. You pick your country. You pick your place. God's the ruler over all those things. And I want you to read what he says in verse 26 through 28. From one man, he said, Paul said, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history. He saw them, he marked them out, and the boundaries of their lands. Did they always follow him? Did they do his will always? No. But he worked there nonetheless. Because he's playing chess while we play checkers. Right? It's like me playing Tate in chess, man. My nine-year-old, like I said, he's whipping my rear, man. I got to get better. That's all there is to it. I'm going to get better. Anyways. And it goes on. He says, God did this. Why did he do this? There are appointed times and boundaries. So that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. God has created every nation. He's determined the rise and fall of nations. Do you realize that? That's what he's saying. I want you to hear what, the, what Daniel, the prophet, said. Daniel was a great prophet. He said this in Daniel 2, 23-21. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He disposes kings and raises others up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Then in 4.17, the decision is announced by messengers. The Holy One declare, declares the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. And he gives them to anyone he wishes. And he sets over them the lowest of people. Well, that makes sense. That's why we know why people get in elected office, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. I shouldn't make that jab. Lord bless you. And, and thank you, God, for your wisdom. He's trying to get us to see him, to seek him. And then Jeremiah 23, 23 through 4 says, Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord? Do, do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I feel it. We know that Psalm 139 says, I can't go anywhere without him, seeing and knowing. I can't flee from him. Everything in our history and life is designed to prompt people to seek after God who is not far from any of us. But the world clouds us from that. Like I said, I got a minor in history. I never heard that before. I went to a Christian university, so I might have heard it maybe once, but it didn't sink in. I might have been sleeping, who knows? Some of those classes were early. But you know, it's the world hides all this. The world says, look at me, look at me, look at me. Everywhere. This is what life's about. It's about all these idols, all these things, all this other stuff, that's what it's about. And Scripture says, no, it's not about that. It's about getting you to seek, you, seek Him, the hope that you'll seek Him and find Him. The hope that you'll walk with him in your life. 
There was a time in my life I had no idea there was a God that existed. And if you tracked the history of my life, you'd see it. Oh, man, Kelly, screw up, screw up, screw up, screw up, screw up. You know? Hurt, 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 hurt. Damage, 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 damage. You know, all sorts of stuff like that. And then there was a point in 1977. And that whole history changed. And I went a whole totally different direction. Why? Because I finally had enough to seek after him. And say, God, if you're there, when are you ever going to save me from myself? Show me you're there. And if you're there, <coughs> if you can save me, I'll follow. Well, he showed me. And it was only in small matters. I thought I needed a whole lot, but I didn't. And I knew he was there. And then my whole life and history changed. That's the same for you. That's the purpose of life. How good would it have been if I would have accomplished all my goals? and lived in that big mansion, and had all those cars, and everything else, and then would have forfeited my soul at the end of my life. What good would it have been? Amen. It's going to be good now. Right? It's good now. But that would have been a loss. So everything in history, Paul said to him, is designed to prompt people to, to seek after God. He's not far from us. He has no problem finding us. It's us who have a problem paying attention to him. He pays attention to our thoughts. He pays attention to our lives. But are we willing to seek him with our whole heart? See, that's the one caveat, our whole heart. We have to be willing to let him be God in our lives. But the next, Paul moves on to the next thing. And, and I hope you're tracking all these things. And he says he's the father of mankind. He's not only the... the the, the creator, he's not only, let's see, what do we got up here? Do we not have the other ones up here? Okay. He's, he's the father now of, of mankind. From God we come and we are created, and in him we live and move and have our being, is what Paul has said. Therefore, our idea of God should not be like any idol, any gold, silver, stone, or anything man-made or produced by nature. Those things aren't God. And we should not follow a God like that. Again, the prophet Daniel critiqued worshipers who praise man-made idols instead of living the living God. And this is what he said in, in verse 23 of chapter 5. He said, instead, you, instead of worshiping the true God, you have set for yourselves up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold and of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. So Daniel said to them, Do you see God as the father of mankind? He's our father. He cares about us. He's there. But lastly, God, and I, I, I'm going to take you just a few more minutes, God is the judge of the world. And that was important for Paul to get that in. It almost sounds like, okay, now comes some bad news. No, it's good news. It's good to know. Paul told the Athenians in verses 30 through 31, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, 
not understanding or seeing God accurately or worshiping these other things. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Everybody must repent. There's nobody born who's been in the church or, or around the church, you're no one good enough that you don't have to repent. All of us have to repent. For he says, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. See, Paul told us in Romans 3.23, for all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a bad news reality. You know that. We sometimes talk in our small group that we all know our sin and we know our failures. We know that. So that's the bad news and most of us know that bad news. But then Paul goes on to say this in Romans, 20, Romans chapter 3, 24 through 26, and this is the good news. And he says, and all are justified, that means your accounts are made right, freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You redeem something means you take it and you buy it back. And Jesus purchased us back. He paid our debt. And, and so if we receive that grace freely, we can be saved. God, it goes on. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Atonement means there's, an, there's a separation. Atonement means that you're brought back together. And Jesus was the sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. His blood paid the debt. And if we receive that in faith, our debt is paid. And it says that he, God, did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Wow! It wasn't his debt. But he knew we couldn't pay it. But he knew he had enough love and resources, and he would do it for us, even though it would cost him so much. Because, he says, in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, and he did it also to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God is more than just. He is merciful. And anybody who puts their faith in Jesus and his death can be forgiven of their sin debt and be set free. Wow! That's the deal of the century. That's the deal of life. You just have to humble yourself and tell the truth and receive it. And God has made a way, and he's given it to us, and it's through Jesus we can be saved. It says this in Romans 6.23. The bad news, the wages of sin is death. If you don't have your sins forgiven, if you do not repent of them, you will die eternally at the judgment. You'll have to face it. God doesn't want that. Why would you? It's so ridiculous. But if you're stubborn and you want to, then I guess you can have what you want. But the good news in Romans 6, 23 is, but the gift of God is eternal life, forgiveness of sin in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And it's a gift. So there's one judge of the world, and there's one judge that every person must stand before. He's going to be the measure. It won't be all these other gods or idols. It won't be all these other philosophies. <laughs> you won't stand before him. You'll stand before one. You'll give an account of your life and of your sin. 
I'm just going to say, the blood of Jesus is on me. He's marked me. I'm not coming by my own righteousness. You know me, God. No way. Thank you for paying my debt. I come in Jesus. And he has proved that he is the one and only judge by rising from the dead. He's proved that he was worthy also by sacrificing his life in payment for our sins. He's shown that. Now as we look to the very final last point in our, our outline, people have the opportunity and the responsibility to respond. And I want you to hear how they responded. Because some of us maybe have responded this way. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. I've shared the gospel. I might be sharing it now. And other people, they're rolling their eyes. Or they're thinking, eh, what a bunch of crock. Or I've heard this all before. Whatever. What time does this get out? I got a lunch date. Right? Some of them sneered. That's what they did. And then others said, we want to hear more on this subject. There are always those that want to hear more. They, they want to lo- hear a little more. The trouble is, sometimes people have good intention to respond, but they never do because they always want to hear more. Don't ever stay in that place very long. If you want to hear more, keep working to hear more and come to a conclusion. Uh, I've talked to people about accepting Christ before, and they've only had you know, weeks, if not days, to make a decision before their life was over. You don't want that to be you. So make a decision on it. They want to hear more. And then it says in verse 33, at that Paul left the council and some of the people became followers of Paul and they believed. So some of them believed. When Paul spoke about this resurrection, it was proof. I'm here to say today that if Jesus rose from the dead, and I am Paul say he did, he did raise from the dead. There's no way I could have been set free and changed without the resurrection of Jesus and he lived. There's no way any of you, raise your hands if you've been changed, and there's no way. Yeah, okay. You're not nuts. You're not a basket case. You know, we might be kooky sometimes, or maybe we've been nuts a little bit at times. But true change and deliverance that brings freedom and blessing Wow, that doesn't happen in life without there's something real. There's no way. He rose from the grave. And because he's risen from the grave, he, if he has, and because he has, he can speak to your heart. He can reveal himself to you in a still small voice in your head. He can reveal himself to you in a picture in your mind or a thought or a word or phrase or dream that you have at night in a feeling in your body or in your heart. And these things can all be wrapped up in circumstances that are intriguingly mysterious and they point toward him being real. It can happen, and it does happen for us who believe. It can happen for you. But the question is, is do you want to know God? Do you want to know God? Are you willing to know him? Are you willing to know Jesus? Do you want to know Jesus? I'm here to tell you, he wants to know you. He does. He wants to know you. He's willing to save you. But to find him, you've got to be willing to come. 
And you've got to be willing to accept him as Lord and Savior. The opportunity and the responsibility to respond to him, it's in your court. It's in my court. What will you do with the opportunity that you have? I want you to stand with me and let's close in prayer. We have an opportunity this day to respond to the Lord. All we must do is make a definitive response to him, and he'll know. And then we need to tell other people about that response. Let them know. We'll be saved. I want you to bow your heads as I read Romans 10, 9 through 13. Paul went on to say, if you declare with your mouth, and you must do this before the Lord, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Do you have to have it all figured out in your head? No. Because he's God, how are you going to have it all figured out? But you have to be able to trust that he's the way, the truth, and the life. And that he was God in the flesh who came to show us God. You've got to be able to trust Jesus. But if you do trust him, you do believe him, you'll be justified, and with your mouth, as you profess your faith, you'll be saved. As the scripture says, anyone who puts, believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew or Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord openly, honestly, will be saved. If you do that this morning, you'll be saved. If we can lead our loved ones to this place of decision, they'll be saved. But we may have to answer some of their questions about God. You can do that now through the scripture. You can open the scripture, use this passage as an outline to help them come to faith and to get through their questions. I encourage you to do so. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you're with us this morning. I thank you that you've been in our presence all along. I thank you that your gospel continues to go forward because your hope and your prayer in the time that we have is that people would be prompted to turn to you, to seek after you and find you and be saved. God, help us to do that while we have time. And help us, Father, to be about following you and serving you and worshiping you as the main priority of our lives. Help us to be about receiving your love and fellowshipping in your love as we have the days and years left on this planet because we know history is moving us to a climax. We pray, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come. But we also pray, Lord God, be patient because we know you wish none should perish but all would come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. Give people more and more chances to know you. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. And so we just rely upon your mercy and your grace, and we all together say, amen. 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 Lord bless your day.